Good morning. Oh, what a joy to see you guys here this morning. It is, uh, my name is James. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're, you're new here, welcome. Encourage you to fill out one of the Connect cards that we have or just go to our website or use the, the, the little bark of the card that's the code that's there to, to be able to find that out. We'd love to be able to follow up with you and, and hear what, what God is doing. So uh, my name is James, and, and this, we are entering into week six now of our series called But God. I just want to say also this past week was just amazing. I had the privilege, my first time being part of one of our youth camps, and it was incredible. I, I, I could not believe the amount of activities were available to do there. If you have kids that didn't go, you have to send them next year. It was absolutely incredible. I had the privilege of every meal sitting with different groups of our students, so many that I don't get to see on a regular basis, and I, I cannot count the number of conversations I had sitting down having a conversation with literally every single one of the people involved in our student ministries and every one of the leaders, and I just had such a joy getting to know people and um, also a joy of preparing for the sermon this week, which I learned next year I will not do sermon prepping while at the, uh, while <laughs> at the retreat, because I wasn't able to do some activities as a result, but I'm excited for what God has to share today. So this week we're entering into week six, and it's the, the topic today is uh, when God seems distant, uh, but God, or when God seems far away. And each week we're looking at a different aspect of God and how in the midst of trial or persecution or suffering or difficulty or, or abuse, how God shows up in those places with those two amazing words where it says, but God, following that, where God presences himself. And sometimes through amazing deliverance and other times through uh, just being present in the midst of it as we walk through those situations. And each week we're having someone give a testimony and then also uh, doing the reading for today. And this week we have the privilege of having our very own Margaret Smith Share, uh, doing the reading for us as well as giving our testimony and uh, we are so grateful that uh, she is not usually one to jump on stage and we thank you Margaret for your courage and your boldness to be up here today. Thank you Margaret. So our reading today is Psalm 13. O Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? How long will my enemy have the upper hand? Turn and answer me, O Lord my God. Restore the, restore the sparkle to my eyes or I will die. Don't let my enemies gloat, saying, we have defeated him. Don't let them rejoice at my downfall. But I trust in your unfailing love. I will rejoice because you have rescued me. I will sing to the Lord because he is good to me. Um, so today's theme is when God seems far away. And um, there are lots of ways that God can seem far away. And this morning I'm going to talk about our experience in experience with parenting. Um, being a parent is great, and it's rewarding, and it's also way more difficult, um, different, and harder than I expected. Um, my husband and I have two adult kids. Um, they both live nearby. We see them pretty often. And um, really, they've grown up to be wonderful adults. They're independent. They're gainfully employed. They live on their own. Um, they're smart, interesting, fun to be with. Um, Really, we enjoy each other's company, and I, I've learned a lot from my kids. But they are very, very far from the Lord. Um, so we've all heard Proverbs 22.6, uh, train up a child in the way they should go, and when they're old, they will not depart from it. And I personally have struggled to understand this verse because 
quite an astounding number of young adults who grew up in loving, authentic Christian homes have indeed departed from the way they were brought up and walked away from God. Um, our dear friends' kids, our nieces, our nephews, just so many. Um, so I know every family has their own story. Um, this is the shortened version of ours. Um, our kids grew up going to church. We took them to Sunday school, Awana youth group. There was Bible reading and prayer and spiritual discussions in our home. And of course, we were stunning examples of Christian living. Um, <laughs> but seriously, we had our issues, but we really tried. We prayed for and with our kids all the time. Um, during teen years, um, one of our kids began to have doubts. We would have deep conversations about faith and God and the Bible. Um, usually when I was cooking dinner, I'd come up and we'd chat. Um, but depression deepened, suicide became a real concern, and um, senior year of high school was hell, really, for all of us. Um, they were trying to make sense of faith and God, but just couldn't seem to get there and finally came to the point of, if God is real, he must hate me. Because why else would God be ignoring my prayers? Sorry. And then our other child was like, well, how could God allow someone to go through this? And so they walked away from the Lord as well. <sighs> so where was God? Why didn't he answer our prayers for our kids? Um, why would God not answer a child's prayer to reveal himself, to show that he's real? Why would God allow someone to become so disillusioned? Why was God so far away from our kids and so, so seemingly unwilling to help them? Honestly, I don't have answers to these questions. It doesn't make sense to me. Um, wouldn't these kind of requests be in God's will? Um, maybe it's maybe it's our fault. Maybe we were praying wrong uh, or not enough or I don't know um, And now ten plus years later Things don't look all that promising for their faith. Um, it doesn't appear that they're anywhere near coming back to the Lord but God um, God has continually given me reassurance and he is with my kids that they will someday come back to him. I love um, Jeremiah 24, 7. I will give them hearts that recognize me as the Lord. They will be my people, and I will be their God, for they will return to me wholeheartedly. Yeah. And God has shown me that his power and his wisdom are not limited by my inability to see a solution. Um, just because I can't see how he could possibly bring them back. Doesn't mean he can't or he won't. And God was with us. When I look back, I see how incredibly merciful he was during those really hard years. He provided dear friends to encourage us, and he provided a church that supported us. Um, and it may seem like a small thing, but he allowed me to sleep at night when we knew there was a very good chance that our child was not going to be alive the next day. God really protected us all. And since then, um, he's really blessed us with a good relationship with our kids. Um, we can even talk about faith. They think we're more or less deluded, but <laughs> they'll still talk about it. And um, 
You know, as James has talked about the last couple Sundays, God uses painful things in our lives to help us grow and bring us closer to him. God used the challenging discussions I had and I continue to have with my kids to strengthen my own faith and understanding of him. Walking through depression and anxiety with my kids pretty much forced me to deal with my own mental health issues, so yay for anti-depression meds. Um, and really the undeniable reality that I am so not in control of any of this um, really increases my dependence on God. In conclusion, I've come to believe that the feeling that God is far away is an illusion. It's a lie. It's a feeling I have, and I feel it very strongly at times, but it's not the truth. The truth is that God is right here with me all the time, and he's with my kids whether they believe in him or not. He loves them. He's protecting them. He's guiding them. And I'm trusting that someday they will see him. Someday they will, as the verse in Jeremiah says, recognize him as the Lord. Wow. Wow. Thank you so much, Margaret. That takes significant courage and bravery to share a story like that. Um, And that's what I want to, be able to talk about today. Today, we're, we're going to be looking at David through the Psalms and his wrestle with God being far away. A feeling that his prayers aren't being answered, that, God, where are you? And um, like Margaret, David's be frequently crying out those same things. God, are you there? Where have you gone? Why aren't you answering my prayers? I mean, it just seems like if you were a good God, you'd answer this prayer I'm asking right now because this prayer seems to make sense. I can't understand how a loving God would not answer this prayer. Why aren't you moving in the ways that I can see in my life? And why can't I feel you? And why aren't you doing what I've asked? Because it makes sense that this is the best option. Anyone else ever felt like that? Where God, I can't feel you and I can't see you. It doesn't make sense why you would remain distant from me. I mean, does God ever feel far away from us? That we, we, we can't feel his presence? His presence? We can't feel him and... And if so, what, what does that even mean that we can't feel his presence? Or that his presence doesn't exist? I mean, what does that mean for us today? What does his presence even feel like? Is, is his presence, is it like touchy-feely, like tingling sensations? Is, is that evidence of God's presence? Well, if so, then anyone that sits next to a boy or a girl they like is experiencing the presence of God, right? Or when I sit on the toilet too long, I get my legs tingle. So maybe, maybe that means God is present whenever I spend a long time on the toilet, right? Uh, because of the tingling sensation in my legs. Or is it emotion or tears? Does that mean that God is present when, when, we're, when we're crying? And, but the problem is, I mean, a good puppy video or a TikTok will, will bring the same reaction. I mean, I think it was a couple years ago in the Super Bowl, there was that incredible ad. I have no idea what it was for, what they were selling, but there was like some grandfather who was like lifting this kettlebell and working out over and over and over again. And you don't really know why. It just shows all these workouts. And eventually it shows in the punchline as he's lifting his granddaughter up to put the, the star on the tree. And if you saw that, I mean, God must have been moving all across the nation because like every eye was crying at that point. If, if God's present equals tears or emotions, then, then we know that God was present. Or maybe it's a feeling of peace. Does that mean that God is present with us when we can feel peace? But then a good day at the spa and a massage can give us that as well. So how do we determine that? 
Or maybe it's the hair on your arms sticking up when you're in the presence of God, and, and that's awesome, but a good magic trick could do the same. Or maybe even a scary movie can make that happen. Or maybe it's a feeling of connectedness, uh, just feeling connected in some way where you're feeling isolated and you feel that sense of connection, but then again, I mean, a good cuddle with my dog will give a very similar sensation, right? So what does it mean then for us to experience the presence of God? Because if God's presence is just a feeling, we got a lot of problems. Because sometimes, it, it may be a feeling sometimes, it may be that tingling or that emotions or one of those feelings that sometimes, but feelings are not the primary evidence of God's presence, if you ever wonder why, why you struggle to feel God's presence, I mean, the scripture is filled with reasons, and, and you're in really good company. If you struggle to say, God, where are you? Why can't I feel you? You're in company with David. You're in company with the Apostle Paul. You're in company with Haman that we looked at last week, and, and in company with me as well, as it's just a regular reality of life. Sometimes we narrowly define the, the, the presence of God to, to being something that is really a feeling or an experience, and therefore we don't feel it because we so narrowly define it. But the reality is we, we are temples of the Holy Spirit, meaning the Spirit dwells with us. There is nowhere we can go outside of His presence. God dwells with us. And, and that's not a feeling, but that's truth. That's a fact. It's absolute truth that God dwells with us. In fact, David said this a thousand years before Jesus came and unleashed His Spirit upon us. David says this in Psalm 139, starting in verse 7. He says, Where can I go from your Spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, you are there. If I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, and your right hand will hold me fast. And again, that is before the Spirit came to dwell within us, and David recognized that there's nowhere that he could go that is away from the Spirit of God. And yet so often we, we limit God's presence to a feeling. I mean, as we spoke in the opening, whether it be that tingling or those emotions, that sense of peace or a scripture screaming out to us, there was a mentor of mine um, back when I was a young adult who, who once taught me about having quiet times, a wonderful saint of the Lord. But what they told me really messed me up for many, many years after that. What they told me was that a good quiet time is one where, where you experience some kind of revelation, where you meet God in some way. And, and they said when they have a quiet time, they will never give up until, uh, or get up until they, they experience something from God. They get their blessing. They said, you know, like Jacob wrestling with the angel of demanding a blessing. They need to encounter God in some way. And as a result, for years, that's kind of how I viewed my quiet times. And if I didn't have some kind of revelation or some experience where God met me in some way, some new revelation that I got out of it, I thought my quiet time was useless. I remember, uh, I think it was just around a number of years ago when I was having this quiet time and, and I, I was pressing into God. And I, I, I remember doing, reading the Bible, a couple chapters. I read a devotional. I then read another book. I went back and read some more chapters. I spent like 20 minutes just in silence listening to God. Couldn't hear him. I remember pressing it again and again. Well over an hour went by. And finally, I remember just slamming my Bible shut and just saying, God, I'm doing everything. Why won't you give me something? Why won't you presence yourself here with me? I'm getting nothing out of this, and I'm giving everything I have to you. And in that moment, I'm serious, I heard such a clear voice in my spirit just speak to me so clearly, and it said, James, when will you ever spend time with me just to be with me? Not to try and get something from me. And I was just convicted immediately, and immediately I was recognized that, I mean, how messed up is that? Like, imagine if I went and spent an hour going on a walk with my wife around the neighborhood, as we sometimes do. And at the end of that hour, I come back, and I go, well, that was a waste of time. She's like, what do you mean? I'm like, I got nothing out of that. All we did was we just walked together. I mean, you told me about your day, and I got nothing out of it. I mean, I didn't get some revelation. I didn't get some deep encouragement. Like, what a complete waste of our time, right? I, I probably wouldn't be married very long, right? I mean, that would be really messed up because we're supposed to actually just enjoy the peace of being together or sitting on the couch together. 
And often people get wrapped up in the experiences and the feelings that they don't, they don't actually experience other ways of meeting with God. In fact, I worked for a while with an organization that, um, that one of the ministries organization really focused on, on, on experiencing kind of the physical manifestations of God and, and really pursuing those in crazy ways and wonderful ways. And, and one of the joys of that, of really going after that, was they saw a lot of people get healed and they saw a lot of people set free and, and they saw a lot of people come to Christ through that ministry. But one of the great weaknesses of a ministry like that that so focuses on those experiences and those manifestations is that when people stepped out of that bubble, so often their faith crumbled because it was entirely based upon that high, that experience, kind of like living in a camp environment that as long as that was there, it was fine. But as soon as they walked out of that, their faith began to fall apart because it was built on a foundation of only feelings and experiences. I mean, growing up, I used to go to a lot of charismatic conferences and different things that people would take me to and where, you know, people are falling in the spirit and laughing and all that other, other stuff that's going on. And, and some of that stuff's awesome, but when I go there, I'd always meet conference junkies, right? People that, that couldn't live outside of some of these conferences where they're just constantly feeling something and experiencing something. Because as soon as they remove themselves from it, all of a sudden they got nothing, right? And they begin to feel weak and they feel that God's nowhere near unless they're somehow in the midst of that glory cloud or some kind of thing that they're looking for. And it's great to have encounters with God. But when that is what we're always seeking, when we're seeking the gifts and not the giver of the gifts, we know that our, our, our focus is becoming far too internal and far too about me. And, 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 and it's a poor foundation that in the dry times and the trials, it won't carry us through. So therefore, sometimes we, we feel distant because we so narrowly define what that means to, to experience God's presence. We can over-sensationalize. And that's one of the first reasons we can feel that God is distant. But then there's also the opposite is true. Sometimes we can feel distant from God because the opposite reason, that we don't actually pursue his presence. That we have no expectation of actually meeting with God in any tangible way or experiencing life with him in any way. I mean, sometimes the other side would say, God is not a feeling. Therefore, they would say, I just read my Bible and I, I, I never have any expectation of experiencing him in any way. Often people in this camp would tend to think kind of arrogantly that they're better off, that they hold to truth and doctrine and, and, and beliefs, and, and therefore there's no expectation of anything more. And sometimes they're called the frozen chosen, right? They're, they know what they believe. They know who God is. But Jesus says to know him, not just to know about him. Right? It's not enough just to have good doctrine and good belief systems and, and the right ways of doing things. And yet so many Christians seem content just to know about God, to get that revelation of who he is but not actually experience him. Maybe it's a fear of being let down. But they don't step out to experience God and take that next step to respond to him. No matter how much the spirit moves, they, they would never dare to raise their hands in, in a time of worship or respond and to move forward for prayer because God fits in nice boxes and it's uncomfortable. And they believe, that, they believe in God. They, they, they know that God loves them, absolutely, but they don't experience God's love. To me, it's kind of like a married couple, a married couple who... who have lived together, and they know there's no doubt about for, for between one another that God loves them, there's, or that, that they love one another. There's no doubt whatsoever. But the intimacy has gone, and they're kind of like roommates living in the same house. They, they know that they love each other. They know they would sleep in the same bed, but there's no intimacy there because there's no longer that feeling that's gone. It's just, yeah, we know we, lo we, know we love each other. We know that's there. And sometimes the husband can say, you know, I told you I loved you when we first got married. Like, why do I need to tell you again? Right? We know that's true. Nothing's changed. I'll let you know if it changes. Um, but so sometimes God feels distant because we've not pursued him. That we've not responded to the Spirit's leading of actually pursuing him, of leaning in, that we keep that faith in kind of a box of doctrines and beliefs, and we're scared maybe of being over-emotional, but we forget how over-emotional God is. 
God is an incredibly emotional God in the scriptures. So emotional, yet that scares us sometimes. And that God longs for us to pursue him, and far more than just our minds, but God longs for us to experience his presence, to enjoy him, to to rejoice with him, to experience all that he has for us. And sometimes the scripture says to, to raise our hands and to get caught up in the moment with him in those times. Another reason why sometimes God can feel distant is that sometimes we don't experience God because we aren't actually spending time with him. I mean, there's no shortcuts to knowing God. I mean, how do you get to know anyone, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, or anyone else? I mean, the way you do it is you spend time together. There's no shortcut for that. You can't get to know someone outside of spending time with them. And if you aren't actually spending regular, consistent time with God, you can't really complain and say, man, God feels so far away. Because you're not spending, that's the only way to get to know him is to actually spend time with him. If we aren't reading the Bible as a regular practice, if we aren't engaging in worship as a regular discipline and leaning into him, it's kind of ridiculous to say, man, God just feels distant right now. Well, obviously. I mean, imagine if you had a friend who came to you and, and, and you asked them how they're doing and how them and their wife were doing, and they said, well, not really good at all. And you're like, oh, what's going on? Well, it's like there's just no intimacy. Like, we, we barely know each other anymore. We're just so distant, and I feel like our relationship just has kind of stopped. You're like, wow, that's, that's terrible. Like, How'd that happen? When did this happen? Like, and they go, well, probably a few months ago. Like, what happened? Well, that's when I moved out of the house and got my own place away from her. We haven't talked since then. Like, well, okay. I mean, it doesn't take a PhD in marriage counseling to understand that's probably why you feel far away, right? You've literally not been together or communicated. And sometimes the same thing is true for us as Christians. We're not spending time with them. And in his word, it's only natural that we would be able to recognize, oh, yeah, God does feel a little distant right now. And another major reason that the Bible shows us why we can feel that God is distant is the hardness of heart that comes through sin in our lives. And it's hammered over and over again that a heart that is hardened by sin will produce this. And Psalm 66, David says this, he says in verse 17, For I cried out to God for help, praising him as I spoke. Here it is, verse 18. If I had not confessed the sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But God did listen. He paid attention to my prayer. Praise God who did not ignore my prayer, withdraw his unfailing love from me. David understood that sin would harden his heart and make it difficult to communicate. Kind of like when it's freezing outside and, and you're dressing your kids to go play in the, fro- the freezing cold and you put long underwear on them, you put on wool socks, you put gaiters on, you put snow pants on, you put on these thick uh, snow boots, you put on this jacket to the point that like there's a bottle of snowman that can barely walk. But the thing that does, it's great, it keeps them warm, but it means they can't even feel cold anymore. There's so many layers of clothing that they have no sensitivity to cold. They, they won't even know that it's cold outside because there's so many layers there. And sin can do the same thing to our hearts. It, it hardens and it prevents us from actually experiencing who God is. It's not that God won't engage with us. He's with us. He's always with us. He always is engaging. It's just that we lose our sensitivity by too many layers of sin hardening our heart. Philip Yancey tells a, a great story when he was a pastor of, about a businessman who came to him one day after church that he was preaching. And, and the businessman asked him and he said, um, will God forgive me if I commit adultery? He's like, excuse me? And uh, the guy says, well, I'm heading away on this business trip, and I, my wife and I have been struggling, and my secretary's going with me, and I'm pretty sure that on this trip something's going to happen, and I want to know in advance, will God forgive me if I commit adultery on this trip? I mean, how would you respond? That's a tough situation to be in, because if you say no, well, are you you're saying that God can't forgive? I mean, that's a difficult place to be in. If you say yes, well, are you just giving him a free pass to go and be stupid? And so he, he prayerfully seeks the Lord, and he's like, Lord, what do I say? And then God just drops an answer in his heart that's just so beautiful. And he turns to me and says, you're asking the wrong question. He says, the question is not, would God forgive you? The question is, will you want God's forgiveness? 
Meaning, if you choose to go ahead with this, you will harden your heart to the point that likely you'll reach the place that you will no longer care about his forgiveness. Your heart will get harder and harder, and you will no longer seek after God. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. He went away to the conference, and he walked away from the Lord. Right? Because the hardness of his heart that sin did. Sin hardens our heart to the movements of God. So often I've had people tell me, you know, God just feels so far away right now. And then I find out, as we could be in talking more, I said, tell me more, that they're spending far more time looking at pornography than they actually spend with the Lord. Okay, any surprise why God feels far away? You've so hardened your heart that you can barely hear him. I mean, God can still speak toward through sin. He can speak through bitterness growing up in our heart. But it's just something that it's going to take a lot more work. We know he can do it because God met us in the place of sin, right? All of us, God met us when we were in sin. So it's not that God can't meet people in the midst of sin. That's where he met us. When we were dead, he made us alive, as we're going to be seeing in a couple weeks. That's the whole message when we look at that passage in Ephesians. God can meet us there, but it means it gets a lot more difficult for us to recognize his voice and to experience his presence. Our sensitivity is severely impacted. James chapter 4, verse 8, is the most famous verse that says, come close to God, and he, God will come close to you. Right? Or draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. I mean, a famous passage that most Christians can quote, because it's so beautiful. And that's wonderful, it's true, it's fact. But how many of you know the rest of the verse? Most Christians don't. They're like, wait, I thought that was the verse. No, it's actually, that's the first half of the verse. The rest of the verse says, wash your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. So he's saying, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. But the context is actually about deal with the sin in your life. Draw near to God is not just pray more, though that's part of it, but address the brokenness and the sin in your life that's actually preventing you from being able to experience the reality of his presence. So to recap, sometimes God is distant because we don't simply recognize him. We're we're looking, we're over-sensationalizing his presence and we miss the ways he's speaking. Sometimes God may feel distance because we aren't actually pursuing him. Right? We've made it about our head and, and not about the heart of actually experiencing him. Faith, it just becomes doctrine of beliefs. Sometimes we don't experience God because, or he seems distant because we're not actually spending time with him in his word and in worship and in prayer. And sometimes he feels distant because our heart is hardened by sin. It is, I also want to spend much of the time today looking at, yet often it's none of those reasons. Frequently for David, that wasn't. I mean, frequently it was sin for him, but oftentimes it was a test or it was just a season or maybe there was no discernible reason at all. And so I want to look at a few of the Psalms this morning to see David's journey with this, because his, his journey is just on display for us all to see. And as we do this, I, I love John, John Calvin, in his commentary on Psalms, has a great quote about this, about the kind of how the Psalms work with emotions. And he says, I've been accustomed to call this book, I think not inappropriately, an anatomy of all the parts of the soul, referring to the book of Psalms. For there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. That's John Calvin, the great reformer. The the Psalms contain an anatomy of all parts of the soul, from grief and sorrow and joy and rage and frustration and agony and pain. Like, everything is on display, and David's just honest with that stuff. So let's start in Psalm 69. Starts in verse 1, it says, Save me, O God, for the floodwaters are up to my neck. Deeper and deeper I sink into the mire and the mud. I can't find a foothold. I'm in deep water. And the floods are overwhelming me. I'm exhausted for crying for help. My throat is parched. My eyes are swollen with weeping, waiting for my God to help me. Now, this is pretty intense. In fact, the language may seem similar if you were here on week one of the series. We looked at Jeremiah and Lamentation sitting in the destroyed city of Jerusalem. I mean, this is some intense wailing here. And I just want to give a quick recap of likely what David would be experiencing at this point in time. We don't know exactly, but it'd be something like this when you know his story. So, remember, David was anointed king at a very young age. 
right? Very, very young age. And, and his brothers kind of hated him like Joseph's brothers because he was favored and, and he had this anointing upon his life at a young age. Eventually, his brothers go off to fight war with the Philistines. He's small and young, so stays home, and his dad sends him to go get his brother's food and go bring it to them. And, and when he goes there, he sees that the Israelites are being mocked by the champion of the Philistines, Goliath. And Goliath is demanding that someone come and face him. And then the king Saul then, then goes and he get, offers his own daughter's hand in marriage to join the king's family and no taxes for their family for the rest of their lives if they'd be willing to go fight Goliath. And no one will stand up. And, and David at that moment says, I'll do it. And you may have heard the story before. David fights Goliath. He destroys Goliath. In that process, he gets the girl. He gets the glory. Right? He gets all of it as he does that. It's this incredible story. As this, as then he is raised up as David, this, this insignificant person, becomes the king's right-hand man. He, he begins to lead all the king's armies. And as he leads the king's armies, being his son-in-law, he then moves into the mansion and then, and then leaves, destroys all the king's enemies wherever he goes. He wipes them all out everywhere he goes to the point that Saul, the king, gets really, really jealous and tries to kill David. And it gets really bad because the people begin singing, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has killed tens of thousands. And so David goes on the run. He hides in the caves in the wilderness as the entire armies of Israel, thousands upon thousands of soldiers, are trying to hunt him and kill him. Even Saul the king is moving around trying to kill David. And he's desperate. He's without food, he's without water, hiding in terror in caves after cave after cave, unjustly pursued as people are mocking him almost dies so many times. And so here he is crying out to God saying, where are you, God? My enemies are trying to destroy me. I've done nothing wrong. How could you allow this to happen to me? He says to God over and over again, deliver me, Lord. Where are you? I am dying. I'm in the mud. I'm in the mire. Why have you turned your face away from me? Over and over and over, David says this. And so that's the background kind of of where David's at as he pens many of these Psalms. He's been running for his life for a decade, probably or more at this point. And so go back and read it again. Psalm 69, verse 1, he says, Save me, O God, for the floodwaters are up to my neck. Imagine his situation. Deeper and deeper, I sink into the mire and the mud. I can't find a foothold. There's no way out. I'm in deep water and the floods overwhelm me. I'm exhausted from crying for help. My throat is parched. My eyes are swollen with weeping, waiting for my God to help me. And he says, O God, you know how foolish I am. My sins cannot be hidden from you as he repents before God. And then he continues in verse 9 and says, Passion for your house has consumed me, and the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. When I weep and when I fast, when he's doing what's right, he says, They scoff at me, they mock me. When I dress in burlap to show sorrow and obedience to the law, they make fun of me and mock me. I am the favorite, the favorite topic of town gossip, and all the drunks are singing songs about me, about how miserable I am. So this is where David is at. I mean, can you feel what he's feeling? He's pretty good at conveying it. If you can't, you might have a problem because this is, he's really good at conveying the misery of where he's at. And then look at the next verse in verse 13. He says this, But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God. Another way of saying that is in the time that is favorable to you, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. So in the midst of the pain and the agony of waiting, David has this incredible understanding of God that he says, at an acceptable time to you, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Wait, do you hear that? I mean, how could he say that? And he knows that God is going to answer him, and he, he's still ranting to God, but begging for help for him in the timing that he wants, and, and saying that he, he knows that God is good, and, but then he says that he defers to God's timing right in the midst of that. 
that, in a time that's favorable for you, God. And that means it could take a really long time. And then he continues and he goes back to his requests. And you see kind of his mood swings in the midst of this. And verse 14, he says, rescue me from the mud. Don't let me sink any deeper. Save me from those who hate me and pull me from these deep waters. Don't let the floods overwhelm me or the deep waters swallow me or the pit of death devour me. And then he shifts back again to trusting a God again. Answer my prayers, O Lord, for your unfailing love is wonderful, even though he's not feeling it right then. Take care of me, for your mercy is so plentiful, though he's not feeling it right then. Don't hide from your servant. Answer me quickly, God, for I'm in deep trouble. Come and redeem me from my enemies. Now, I love how he goes back and forth right here. And he says at this point, later on, he goes, I mean, to heck with your acceptable time, God. Not in your time, favor. Help rescue me now. Right? He just kind of goes back and forth of, of this thing with God. I need you. And he goes on to say, Lord, bring your wrath upon them. In your fierce anger, wipe all of them out. I mean, what happened to trusting in God and in his timing and his mercy and all the rest of it? I mean, he goes and he says, I mean, again and again, he, he goes through this journey and Many of you guys ever felt that way in any way of you reach out to God and you say, God, where are you? I can't do this, Lord. I, I need your help. And, and then you spend some time praying, like, okay, Lord, I trust you. I know you're good. I'm going to hold on to you. I'm going to reach. I'm reaching out to you, Lord. I know you're good and your timing. And then the next hour, you're like, God, where are you? I need you now. Why have you failed me? I mean, many of us experience this, and Dave is just leading the way. Remember, these aren't just personal diary entries like you may have in your journal as you go back and read. You go, wow, I was a wreck, right? And I was like, manic. I'm all over the place. This is actually songs to be sung. In fact, as you open it up, it says, this is, sung to the, this is sung to the tune of lilies. I mean, this is a song that they knew the song. They were supposed to sing this out as a nation. David is writing these as songs to be sung eventually by billions of people, right? That we're supposed to walk that journey, which means if you feel that way, you're in really good company. Because this is not unique for David. Let's, let's look at Psalm 13. He says, now this is another one from affliction. He says in verse one, oh Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? How long will you look the other way and hide your face from me? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? How long will my enemies have the upper hand? Trust or turn and answer me, O Lord my God. He's making demands of God. He's saying, Lord, you've forgotten me. Come now, answer me. I demand an answer. He says, restore the sparkle to my eyes or I will die. Don't let my enemies gloat, saying, we have defeated him. Don't let them rejoice at my downfall. And then he comes to his senses, and here's the but God portion we looked at this morning in the reading. But I trust in your unfailing love. I will rejoice, notice the language, because you have rescued me. I will sing to the Lord because he is good to me. You see, from the darkness, he proclaims, but I trust in God's unfailing love. I have faith that God's love is unfailing, and so I will sing of his goodness even when I feel forgotten. God has not yet answered him. God has not responded, and he's already claiming the rescuing hand of God because he knows that it's sure whether he's experienced it yet or not. And he proclaims in faith and in truth, not his feelings, but he claims what he knows to be true. He proclaims he is rescued even while he feels lost and abandoned and forgotten. Now, where none of us have likely been in a situation like David where we've had people trying to kill us every day for years and years and years. There are many of us who have felt abandoned by God, where we feel that God may not be listening to our prayers and where we're asking God, where are you over and over again? I mean, it could be you're praying about finances or health or school or kids. As we had the beautiful testimony this morning. 
or about the future or mental illness or depression. I mean, and it seems that God remains out of touch, that he's hiding his face from us and not responding. And like David, maybe you've told God, I'm exhausted of crying to you for help. I have no more strength to call out, cry out to you anymore. God, where are you? I mean, in verse one, look at what he says there. He says, how will you forget me? He says, I'm not, he's saying that God isn't just distant. He's saying that God no longer even remembers who he is. Like he said, God, you've forgotten me. I mean, that's how David feels. Look at how he feels. He says, God is intentionally avoiding him. You're hiding your face from me. You intentionally are avoiding me. He's saying, God, you're no longer my friend. You've abandoned me. He says, when I, what he's saying basically is when I walk down the side of the street, you move to the other side and walk away from me. It's evident you're avoiding me. You want nothing to do with me. You've abandoned me. You're ashamed of me. And for David, he has this promise from God to be king. And for year after year after year, it's not being realized. He's just living at the edge of death constantly. Look at one more. In Psalm 27, he starts. He says, hear me as I pray, O Lord, in verse 7. Be merciful and answer me. Do not turn your back on me. Do not reject your servant in anger. You've always been my helper. Don't leave me now. Don't abandon me, O God, of my salvation. And then check out what he says here. Right from the midst of it. Verse 14. Wait patiently for the Lord. Be brave and courageous. Yes, wait patiently for the Lord. Like, whoa, where did that come from? Right in the midst of crying out in pain. It's like, be brave and courageous. Wait patiently for the Lord. Yes, wait patiently for the Lord. So he's begging God for an answer, demanding a response. And then he stops and says, no, Lord, I trust you. I will wait patiently for the Lord. This is what is brave and courageous, he says. And this is from David, the mighty, mighty King David. What is brave and courageous as it's storming the gates like his mighty men, what is brave and courageous is wait patiently for the Lord. And can you hear the desperation in his voice? And he finishes again by coming back to facts and truth, not feelings. And I heard a line by Craig Groeschel. I'm actually stealing a couple points from him today. And he says, sometimes you got to get out of your feelings and activate your faith. And I love that. Sometimes you got to get over your feelings and activate your faith and move on what is truth. Your feelings can fool you, but feelings are not facts. They're not truth. And we have to sometimes get over that and move into faith in what is true. And we can see that with David. His faith is telling him that God has forgotten him. I mean, we've all felt that way at times probably, that God is ashamed of him or God is avoiding him or that God doesn't want to be near him, that God is intentionally avoiding him. And his feelings were telling him that God was letting him drown in the ocean of, sea, of the sea, pouring over him, that God didn't care. And in the midst of the emotions being all over the place, he keeps coming back to truth. And again, after experiencing that whole range of emotions, he does the courageous thing, the brave thing as he describes, and he says, I will wait patiently on the Lord because I trust him. He knows how hard life is. I mean, he literally almost dies every day. The Bible tells us, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That is truth. It says in the Bible that he will never leave us nor forsake us. That is truth. Those aren't feelings. I mean, similar to last week, we're looking at Haman. David does not give up praying. Even when God seems distant for what may be like years, he keeps praying and pressing in and praying and pursuing when times are good and when they're hard. Morning and evening, like Haman, he keeps coming to God in prayer over and over and over again through all of the silence, through all of the distance, through all of the pain. Corrie ten Boom had another great quote. She's the one that was stuck in the Nazi trans- concentration camps for, for years and tortured and saw many die and came out and later forgave her captors and her torturers. And she said, prayer can either be a steering wheel or the spare tire. I love that statement because for many 
Christians, prayer is the spare, really is the spare tire. It's a last resort. When, when we pray, it's because the things have already gone to pot. Everything has, has been ruined. And when we're ready to pray is we're stuck on the side of the road and we're trying to jack up the car while laying in the, in, the, in the water, the cold and the rain pouring down on us. That's when we finally turn to prayer oftentimes. But instead, she says, it should be the steering wheel. Prayer should be what steers our life. It's how our life should be guided is coming to God. That's the steering wheel, that it should be at the front end of us leaning into God constantly, not just as a last resort when we can't feel him any longer and life has gone the wrong way. So if you were to ask David then, what should we do when God feels far away? How do you think he'd respond? Well, I think at first he might say, well, freak out. That's the best possible response, right? And then write a bunch of songs about how God is distant and never there and, and tell the whole world why God is terrible and why he's rejected you and his enemies are conquering. Like, I think that might be David's first response sometimes. But I think as he comes to it, then he might say, wait patiently upon the Lord. Because that's what's truth. Lean into what's true, not just to how you feel. One last psalm, Psalm 40, he says here, In verse 1, he says, I waited patiently for the Lord to help me. And he turned to me and heard my cry, and he lifted me out of the pit of despair, out of the mud and the mire. He lifted me out of the mud and the mire. Now, where does that language, where have we heard that before another psalm? You remember that I was stuck in the mud and the mire, and here he's saying that God lifted me out of it. Literally, that was Psalm 69 we looked at earlier, that I'm stuck in the mud and the mire, and I can't get out. And here he says, praise God, because he has lifted me out of these things. Before he said, I've run out of tears to cry. Now he says he's praising God. He says, he goes on to say, he has set my feet on solid ground and he steadied me as I walked along. Verse three, he has given me a new song to sing, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see what he has done and be amazed. They will put their trust in the Lord. Oh, the joys of those who trust the Lord. This is the same David. Earlier he was saying how he's being mocked for following God. Now he's saying that God will be praised as people will see the faithfulness of God through his life. So, what then do we learn through this quick trip through David's mood swings in the Psalms? We, we see that there's a lot of different ways to respond. Like last week, just like Haman, that David's constantly coming to God in prayer. We see that he is leaning in morning and night. No matter what he feels like, he keeps coming back to God. Notice, even the worst things that David says, who is he speaking them to? To God. He's taking all of that pain and he's turning it into worship. Even the accusations against God, the questions are turning into worship and prayer to God. He does not stop. He keeps pressing in and he keeps coming back to truth every single time. Every single time he comes back to truth. That God, you are good, you are loving, you are merciful, you are faithful, and it is good to wait patiently on you. That your timing is better than mine. David anchors himself in the facts, not feelings. He anchors himself on the truth that he knows God's goodness, even when he can't feel it or see it or taste it or experience it. Even when it's only faith because it's been so long since he's seen it, he holds to his faith. David knows that if he keeps drawing near to God, that that God is there whether he feels him or not. And he knows that sometimes God is distant, even for entire seasons. Sometimes he knows it's due to his sin, and so he repents regularly. Sometimes it's that God is wanting him to trust him with something. And so God pulls away so that David draws near. And sometimes David just can't feel him. He has no idea why. And he freaks out and he makes questions and he makes demands and he lashes out at God. But he always comes back around to trusting God. Always. And it's good to wait patiently on the Lord. On the Lord. So what about us then? What do we do when God feels distant? When our prayers are unanswered? When our tears have gone and made our eyes swollen, as David says. 
We probably get angry. We like to question God. Sometimes, as even Margaret was sharing, sometimes we turn away from God. We begin to deconstruct. Like, if a good God would clearly do this, and we begin to, to run away. Sometimes we turn inwards. We walk in shame, saying, it must be my fault that God is distant. And we turn towards condemnation and shame that build within our hearts because we're like distant. He's distant because of me. But there's a few powerful verses I just want to go back over again that I love so much. One is Psalm 34, 18. God says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. Those who are crushed, he saves those who are crushed in spirit. That is truth, not a feeling. God is near. Matthew 28, 20, he says, and these are the very last words that Jesus speaks in the book of Matthew. The very last words to his disciples. He says, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, the end of time. That's Jesus saying that. Speaking that to his disciples and to all say, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Or Deuteronomy 31, verse 8, he says, The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Now, the author of Hebrews repeats this passage and quotes it for today, saying this is true, and it's true for us, that he will never leave us, never forsake us. He will never leave because we dwell with him, even in those times where we don't feel him. Even when those times, maybe it's a testing or God feels distant for some reason. You know, there was a time for me a number of years ago when God was trying to get my attention and I wasn't listening. And I was, specifically, I was trying to decide of whether or not I should join a long-term team of missionaries that were going to plant churches in central China. It was going to be a long-term team of years. And uh, I, I just finished up this disciple program, discipleship program in Australia. And uh, it was coming to an end, and I had two weeks where the, this team was going to get together and begin their training. I had two weeks to make the decision. I remember for the last three months of this program, every day I'd been begging God to tell me, like, God, should I join this or should I go back home and go finish college? And like every single day in silence, day after day after day. So finally, I'm given the ultimatum. My flight leaves tomorrow, and I have to decide, do I join or do I go home? And I didn't have an answer. I kind of wanted to go. I kind of felt it, but I didn't have an answer. And so I, I changed my flight to leave two weeks later, and I, and I decided, you know what, I'm going to do the, the holy thing. I'm going to start fasting. And not just a normal, like a simple fast, I'm going to go hardcore, no food, and just a tiny bit of water each day, because I had some twisted idea that the more I punish myself, the more God has to speak to me, right? That I can force him to speak. And so I began, I found this empty classroom that was, that was near there, that every day I'd go and spend about eight hours or more just on my face before God, just begging him to tell me, Lord, should I move to China as a missionary or not? What do I do, God? Day after day after day, eight hours a day, at least a day, me doing that and getting weaker and weaker with every day and getting angry and angry. I remember by about day 10, I was just angry. And I'm just annoyed and disgruntled. I'm there praying, just like, God, why won't you speak? I'm giving everything. I'm willing to commit the rest of my life to you. I'm willing to die as a missionary in China and you won't just give me one single word. Why won't you speak to me? I want to do this, God, and I'm not hearing anything from you. Why won't you speak? The days kept going, getting angry and angry. Finally, on day 13 or 14, I forget which one it was, I remember just being angry. At this point, I was, it was day 14, sorry, I remember being out, and I literally fainted. I was getting so weak because not enough water and food and still running around. I remember just fainting multiple times that day. And I remember that day just going and laying on that floor, barely able to stand. And I remember just praying out to God and saying, God, I'm so done. Like, God, I'm tired. You won't speak. You want to be silent? Fine. Or just slamming my Bible closed and going, fine. I'm moving to China. I don't care what you want. Right? And that moment, as I finally, out of anger, made that, I swear, I heard such a clear voice speaking to my spirit and said, finally. Like, you knew that three months ago. This is on you, not on me. I never told you to do any of this stuff, right? And I just knew it immediately. God was just saying, you knew already. You didn't need to do this. This is all on you. I'm not silent because of that. He was showing me those things, right? And so sometimes 
God is silent because he's trying to get through our thick skulls something, and that's often the case with me. Sometimes he's wanting us to trust him. For so many Christians, faith is based far more on feelings or experiences than actually based upon truth. Remember what Jesus told the doubting Thomas after the resurrection when Thomas wanted to see his hands and touch his scars and put his hand in his side. And after he does that, Jesus comes up to him and he, he says, put your hands here, touch the hand on my side. And then he says to him, he says, Thomas, you believe because you saw. Blessed are those who have faith that never get to see. Right? Because there's something beautiful about that, that silence without having that opportunity. And so sometimes his silence is because of sin in our lives, and that's a reality or bitterness that grows up that hardens our heart. I love how Peter says it in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. He says, In the same way you husbands must give honor to your wives. Treat your wife with the understanding as you live together. She may be the weaker than you are, but she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. Treat her as you should so your prayers will not be hindered. You see what he's saying there? He's saying your prayers are being hindered because you're not treating your wives well. That there is a place of an expectation us as Christians are walking in the way that God has for us because Peter understands, he's one of the best friends of Jesus, that that will affect our ability to connect with God. So silence is, is not just a sign that God is not working, but often one that he is working, that he's doing something on the inside, maybe not the outside, that maybe we aren't aware of it. But he never leaves and he never departs, no matter how much sin we are in, or what poor choices we make, he's right there with us working in our lives. But our job is to keep pressing in, to keep spending time with him, to keep holding on to truth and not just our faith, not, and faith, not just our feelings. I mean, sometimes you don't feel love for your spouse, but you press in. Sometimes you may not feel love for your kids, but you, it doesn't mean you just take them to a rest stop and drive away, right, and leave them alone, though you may feel like you want to, right? You press in, you keep pursuing them, you love them. The same is true with God. He pushes, we must press in to experiencing him even when he feels distant. And one of the first steps, if you feel that God is distant, is I I just pray the prayer of, of David in Psalm 139, verse 23. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I mean, only the Lord's prayer have I prayed more in my life than that prayer right there. Saying, Lord, test my heart. Is there offensive ways as I want to move closer to him? And then recognize that just because you don't feel him doesn't mean he's not there. Step out of your feelings, activate your faith, and stand on truth. Pursue him day in and day out. Follow David's example, follow Haman's example, lean into him. And in his timing, we will experience him again. But don't give up. Now, some of us may not have experienced intimacy with God the way that that we see explained in the Psalms. And I would just say, do not stop pursuing God. Maybe some of you are part of that kind of frozen chosen that God has just existed in your mind of beliefs and systems and and doctrine and you know him really well but you can't relate to the Psalms where David says things like like a deer panting after water is so my soul longs after God. Maybe you're in that place like I've never experienced that kind of intimacy. I would say trust and lean into God because he wants to meet you in those ways. It's not the only way but he wants to meet you. He wants you to experience his love not just know that he loves you. And whether you're in a dry spell or God is distant to you right now, keep pressing in. And so as we close, can I ask the worship team to come forward? Um, As we finish this morning, I would say I want us all just to press in this morning as we finish with worship. Whatever your circumstances are, whether you're in the middle of a storm and it's just life is, is hard, whether you're experiencing incredible life and joy right now, or whether you're in the midst of a very dry spot, let's lean into God this morning and pursue him regardless of where we're at. Jesus will never leave us or forsake us. If we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. We can experience more of the reality of who God is. 
I mean, does anyone want to experience God more intimately? I know this is weird for us, but raise your hand if you want to experience more of who God is, right? I mean, if you know Jesus, your hand should be up. Mine is. I want more of God. We need to push in and press in and not sit idly back and just say, ah, whatever, the way it's supposed to be. And one of the places I experience God most clearly is through worship. And so we're going to finish with worship this morning, and I want us to press in as we, as we worship God. Press in. Have an expectation that God wants to meet you this morning, regardless of how many times you tried and failed. Keep pushing in. Keep following Him. Keep pursuing Him, no matter what your circumstances may be. Let's pray. Jesus, we want more of you. We want to know you more. We want to experience the intimacy that you called us to, of that triune fellowship of Father, Son, and Spirit that you've invited us into, Lord. And I recognize there's dry times, and some of us, it's been a long, long time, Lord. And I pray that right now, Holy Spirit, may you come and move in our midst. May we be able to activate our faith regardless of our circumstances, Lord, and lean into you right now. Thank you, God, that you are with us right here in this room, with us right here and right now, that you never leave us. And so as David said in 1 Psalm 139, there's nowhere that we can go where you are not there. You are here, and you are, you are here in every way, whether it be through the joy on my kids' faces, whether it be through worship songs or encouraging word. You're there in the small things and in the big things, Lord. But I just pray right now, Lord, may you move in our midst. Help us to draw near to you, Jesus, right here and right now. Help us continue to seek you, Jesus. Let us worship you.